This podcast was recorded at 11.15 Jakarta time on 18 January. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reformasi Dispatch. I'm Jeff Hutton, regional correspondent for the Straits Times in Singapore, where we never have to do a retake of the pod. We always get this in one take. Isn't that right, Kevin? <laughs> Didn't you just say that about uh, 20 minutes ago? Ah, yeah. <laughs> one take Reformasi Dispatch. <laughs> Kevin O'Rourke, the author of Reformasi Weekly. Welcome. Good to talk with you again. Yeah, great to be here. On the pod this week. President Joko Widodo's snarky sons from Babo of Love. And coming up after the break, Dickie Budiman, epidemiologist from Griffith University, Queensland. He's going to talk to us about Omicron boosters and uh, the, the new Pfizer pill. No, not that one. The one for the... <laughs> the Paxlovid. Paxlovid. <laughs> Paxlovid. <laughs> Not not Viagra, Paxlovid. The other, the, the other blockbuster pill. Um, but first... We're back at the coal face where the government has partially eased its ban on coal exports by allowing shipments among 47 companies deemed to have fulfilled their obligation to sell 25% of their coal to state-owned power utility PLN. President Joko Widodo had banned overseas shipments on December 30th on worries that power stations that burn coal in order to generate electricity, you know, those ones are going out of fashion. We're not going to have them anymore. they were looking at like a few days of supply before we uh, were facing blackouts. So a ban was put in place, but that elicited a huge hue and cry from not only the producers, frankly, but uh, China and Japan. There, you know, there's these free trade agreements and other international investment, <laughs> you know, promises that they had to ship the coal. So there's been a there's there's been some sort of happy medium reached, but still there is a it is tougher to ship the coal, which I would have thought is all sort of moot anyway because Indonesia is moving away from fossil fuels. We're all about renewables now. This is a this is a a twentieth century problem, right? Not a twenty first century problem that we're dealing with. Or am I wrong? We just got to keep the lights on in the interim. That's the trick here. Right, right. <laughs> At a cost that doesn't burden consumers. So you know, the government's trying to keep the price of electricity depressed for consumers. And they're doing so by regulating the price that PLN pays for coal from mining companies. And that's the crux of the issue, right? Like, Why are the power stations so short of coal? Yeah, there's uh, two things going on, I think, actually. The the main one, of course, is that the international prices double what PLN pays, so everybody wants to export. Uh, But there's subtly another uh, trend, which is that when the government first put out this rule called the DMO, the Domestic Market Obligation, requiring producers to confer 25% of their production to PLN, that percentage was plenty uh, uh, as a percentage of national production of coal to give PLN plenty of coal. Since then, however, the uh, production of coal has grown about 5% uh, per annum, while the consumption of electricity has grown by about 7% per annum. Sorry, the the consumption of coal for electricity has grown by 7% per annum, so it's been outstripping the production. So 
that 25% of production is not really, it's just barely sufficient now to, to provide PLN with what it needs under the best of circumstances. And in fact, the energy minister disclosed last week that 428 coal mining companies last year gave PLN 0% of their production. And, Whoa, uh, yeah, zero. Only a, yeah. Well, yeah, that's what he said in parliament last week. And only, uh, I'm looking at the numbers, uh, 104 companies supplied any coal. So yeah, 80% of the sector is, uh, is doing nothing towards the DMO. And now presumably these are very small coal mining operations, most of them. And uh, they may find it difficult to comply with uh, DMO for various reasons. Just setting up a contract with PLN is burdensome to begin with, uh, for starters. Um, and meanwhile, the ones that do comply are the, are the major ones, the gigantic producers that are producing tens of millions of tons of coal per annum. Yeah, the uh, darkness uh, yeah. of the world, uh, yeah. multi-hadapan, Borneo, Indo- Indobara, th- those are the ones that are actually in compliance. Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, yeah, there was uh, so the, the new rule is that uh, companies that have fulfilled 100% of their DMO may export. And so there was a list that circulated of seven companies that are allowed to send shipments. And uh, they're a mix of uh, a couple of the biggest companies, uh, Adaro, Indica, and then also some medium ones like Monty Harapan. And then there's some, I think, some small ones in there too, actually. Um, so, um, meanwhile, there's some notable exceptions. The biggest producer is Boomi Resources, which belongs to the Bakri Group, and they were not on that list uh, no of seven way. companies. Really? Um, um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's interesting, and, um, yeah, but it's still not really clear whether that list was sort of what, what, what the basis was for that list. And it, it, the government has been very coy about disclosing the status of who has complied with the rules and who has not specifically only just uh, just last week, a few days ago that the minister disclosed this breakdown in terms of numbers of companies, but otherwise it's a, it's a mystery and parliamentarians are asking, why is there not a disclosure or who benefits from keeping these uh, this information secret? It's only the, the coal mines themselves, the, the ones that are delinquent that, that want it secret so that their financiers and shareholders don't know about it. Uh, but the the public should have a right to know. These parliamentarians say. Um, I guess the. I mean, if you want to be sort of, I don't know, a journalist, you would ask the question: um, What about the coal interests of the cabinet ministers for whom you know they? It's no secret, right? I mean, there are some very senior, very senior officials who have a lot of coal interests. Has there been any discussion about how they're doing? I, you know, I, I could just feel an ITE charge coming out at any second. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. These, uh, yeah, some of the figures involved uh, uh, have m- multiple roles. They are central in policy making, and uh, meanwhile, they engage in business and coal mining. And uh, in the legal arena, they like to indict their critics. So uh, it's mm. <laughs> makes things thorny. Uh, so uh, Luhut Panjayatan is the coordinating minister who uh, covers the energy sector. And he's been at the forefront of this uh, from the outset, along with energy minister uh, Arifin Tasrif. And there's a, a problem I- inherently because uh, Luhut founded a coal company, which is now known as TBS Energy, 
brands itself as a renewable energy company, but it makes virtually all of its revenues from mining coal and running coal-fired power plants. And it's small. It produces about uh, three to four million tons per annum. It's aspirational. It's, it's, yeah, it's, well, it's that's significant. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big business by any stretch of the imagination. It's just yeah, it's yeah, <laughs> um, big, but, but yeah, it's not yeah, gigantic yeah. like some of them. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's not clear whether he still owns that or not. He in 2016 he said that he got out of business and focuses on politics. And meanwhile, that year, there was a sale of 62% of TBS Energy to Highland Investments, which is a fiduciary trust in Singapore, which the beneficial owners are unclear. And uh, Panjayatan has never said uh, to whom he sold that stake. Um, and meanwhile, Highland hasn't disclosed it. And the whole purpose of this fiduciary trust is to keep that secret in Singapore. Uh, and so it could very well be himself. He may have just reorganized his ownership through Singapore rather than holding it in Indonesia. Um, but so it's unclear. And as long as it's unclear, then there's questions about whether the policies that he's making are designed to uh, benefit whom? Um, Indonesia or electricity consumers or PLN or mining companies and which mining companies? Uh, one that he owns, perhaps. You know, so. It hurts the credibility of the policymaking for sure, because at issue right now is who's going to bear the burden for uh, the subsidy uh, of electricity consumers. Yeah, and they're loath to um, pass it on to the consumer. Um, and uh, they, they, the policymakers, um, are under a lot of pressure to allow coal miners to access the, the high the high market rates. Um, so there's a real conflict of interest. It's the, the, this opacity is just not something that you want. Yeah. And it's really, really quite depressing that when we talk blackouts, it's because there isn't enough coal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. right. Uh, <laughs> so I haven't seen a lot of pickup or chatter about this then causing a pivot to renewables. Like we're running out of coal. Well, shouldn't we be talking about renewables anyway? Is there, has that, uh, is, is it driving conversation about a, a shift to cleaner energy that, that you've seen? I've, I haven't I seen chat, it. I, I chatter about it. Yeah. I, I, I walk well, we go on and on and on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chatter to myself. Um, yeah. But uh, it's what I believe, actually, because uh, so the, who's going to bear the subsidy cost? There's different ways to go about it. And last week, uh, Luhut Panjaitan and uh, Energy Minister Tasrif proposed to Parliament a plan whereby there would be a new public entity called a, a BLU, Public Service Unit, which would collect levies from coal producers, um, probably just exporters and those proceeds would then uh, compensate PLN for its losses while PLN buys its market now at market rates. So the idea here would be to incentivize domestic sales of coal to PLN because producers would be able to get uh, a proper international price by selling to PLN and they don't need to export anymore. If they do export, in fact, they would have to pay a levy. Now, right. this would be good for the 
producers of the low-grade coal that PLN prefers because it's cheap, despite what it does to the skyline in Jakarta, um, and it would hurt the uh, the big major producers who produce high-quality coal, which gets the really high price in international markets. Those are the ones that would be paying the levy. So, so that was the plan that uh, Lohut and Tasrif took to Parliament, and Parliament immediately uh, uh, said no, uh, flatly refused, and uh, formally rejected the idea. They're afraid that it'll hurt consumers. They're, they're afraid that it just won't work in practice. And the parliamentarians pointed out that forming a BLU, a public service entity like that, to collect levies is illegal unless there's a clear basis in law beforehand, which there is not. So uh, it's back to the drawing board. And what that means basically is that, um, you know, the, the simple solution to this uh, simple arithmetic problem is that PLN has to pay more for its coal if it wants to get the coal that it needs from suppliers who can also uh, export. Uh, even with the DMO being enforced, uh, PLN is probably going to have to pay more. Uh, basically, that 25% DMO that's in law is just not quite enough nowadays to give PLN what it needs, even if everybody does comply uh, with the rule. So if if implicitly it seems as if PLN is going to have to pay more for coal, then that is looking like it's a positive factor for solar energy, uh, because even a small increase to that $70 per ton ceiling that PLN pays would really uh, improve the competitiveness of solar energy. Question um, about the fuel mix. Uh, you noted in your report that uh, uh, as, a, as a source of um, energy production, coal is pretty much steady from last year, grew 1%. Geo geothermal is up about 10%. And then there's a, a another category that's up 33%. Now that kind of feels like it might be off of a, a low base, but uh, please tell me that's uh, renewables. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I had to put in other there because the information I had didn't make clear what it was. But if you look at it, it, it has to be solar power and wind uh, because there are um, a small handful of those projects around. Uh, and because uh, you got total, diesel in there, so, uh, yeah. diesel is a separate category, and that's big. That's two percent of national energy mix, and it increased by seven percent last year. So yeah, you know, the, the 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 priority is to switch those out. Actually, I mean, everybody talks about switching out coal, uh, which is you know, definitely necessary. But the low hanging fruit is to switch out those diesel generators because. Uh, those are really, really dirty and really, really expensive. And coal is really dirty, but relatively cheap. Um, and these diesel generators are typically what a small island will use. Of course, Indonesia's got um, thousands of those. Um, Wasn't I that all part of an electrification drive a few years yeah. ago? Like the government, right, yeah. really, right? Okay, and they're doing they're just they're they're getting houses hooked up to the grid. Well, not actually hooked up to the grid, electrified no. by rolling out a bunch yeah. of diesel. Generous. Yeah, so I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a great thing, right? Because people can have yeah, yeah. electricity and kids Absolutely. can do their homework at night. Yeah, so I mean, it's been wonderful. That's uh, what Indonesia really needed. Fifteen years ago, the priority was just to get electricity to the people. Totally and, understand. Uh, yeah, yeah, they've done that. Uh, so now, now the priority though is to um, replace Swap these diesel out. generators. Right, right, right. Yeah, you can put solar uh, uh, arrays on these islands, and it, it would work. So. Anyway, that's 2% of the mix. Um, and the renewables, the solar and wind, is uh, only 0.4% of the uh, – sorry, 
0.4 gigawatts, which is um, you know, less than 1% of the total energy mix of 74 gigawatts. So it's really tiny, but it is the fastest growing segment. What's uh, megawatts again? Um, 400 megawatts, whereas the total is 74 right. gigawatts. 74 um, gigawatts. So it's, it's, yeah. yeah, so it's not even half a gigawatt is um, solar and wind. Now, if you talk right. about uh, biomass, that's bigger. That's 1.9 uh, gigawatts. Uh, geothermal energy, which is purely clean, is uh, 2.3 gigawatts. And Hydro hydropower is in there, right? Hydro is yeah. big. Yeah, that's 6.6 gigawatts. That's 9% of the energy mix now. Yeah, but uh, solar arrays and wind farms, uh, not yet. Not yet. No, the the regulatory framework is just not there, and there's a long overdue decree from the president about renewable energy pricing. You know, there's still no sign of when that might come forth. All right. Just leave it. And now, is this a dagger I see before me? <laughs> nice. <laughs> sounds Defense, uh, Shakespearean. Yeah. A little bit of Macbeth. Uh, Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto provided golden crease daggers as gifts to four retired military officers who served in the Megawati administration. Uh, now, Andrew Priono was one of them. Agum Gumilar. Uh, I'm, yeah. Andrea Tarno, Andrea Tarno Sutarto, and Widodo Adi Suchipto. These, Hendro yeah. uh, and Widodo sound familiar. Um, well, yeah, Widodo AS, um, you know, there's a lot of Widodos out there. <laughs> uh, Widodo AS, yeah, Adi Suchipto, he's, he's always really known as Widodo AS, and so he was the military chief from the Navy. Um, yeah, in the Megawati era. And um, uh, Andrea Tarno Sutarto was the army chief during that time. And then Agum Gumilar was a minister, but he was from the army. And both he and Hendro Priono, who was the intel chief, had been Suharto era generals in the early 1990s with intelligence functions in the army who basically helped Megawati. Uh, they engaged with her and then reported back to Suharto that uh, she was actually no real threat and he need not worry about her. Uh, and so she really appreciated that. And to this day, she right. hasn't forgotten them. And then it's, it's you know, fast forward a couple of years later, uh, Megawati was uh, <laughs> Uh, eventually uh, in the presidency after Suharto had vacated it with um, the lapse of just uh, three years there. Um, so they, they're they seen by her as uh, lifelong allies. That's uh, Andrew Priano and uh, Agum Gumilar. And then these other two, Sutarto and Widodo, were uh, the, the top military figures during her presidency. So Prabowo held a function with a whole bunch of retired military people. And afterwards he gave these four very large, very ornate ceremonial daggers or crease uh, to these four people. Um, and so this was just a, a brazen sort of overture, a blatant attempt to win their favor because of their presumed influence and importance to Megawati uh, with whom Prabowo wants to form an alliance uh, for the, the presidency in 2024. 
Right, and this comes after unveiling a, a statue of Megawati's father, uh, Sukarno, outside the defense ministry. And the event comes as new polling from I Indicator Politik confirms the two-time presidential candidate and likely contender in 2024 has nearly 100% name recognition, followed by, interestingly, Sandy Uno. If you want to get your name out there, become a VP candidate. Just, I'm just yeah. saying. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and seek publicity. And yeah, all week yeah. I've, I mean, I've, I love talking to the guy. He's gives a great interview. Um, and of course, and Anis Pazwiden. Also, in yeah. the high 80s. Yeah. Well, mid 80s. That's kind of shocking. Yeah, the counterintuitive thing here, though, yeah, the, the counterintuitive thing about these uh, name recognition levels, which is new data that came out last week, is that the lower percentage is potentially a benefit in certain cases, especially for Ganjar Pranowo, the central Java governor, because he's already neck and neck with Prabowo in the standings in terms of popularity. But in terms of name recognition, only two out of three Indonesians recognize Ganjar. He's at about 67% name recognition nationwide, whereas Prabowo, as you mentioned, is 98%. So as more Indonesians become aware that Ganjar exists, at least some of them are going to choose him, especially because a lot of Indonesians are undecided about whom they want to support right now. And so that's going to give Ganjar fuel to surpass Prabowo, I think. Then he'll just need somebody to actually nominate him. <laughs> what is the significance of a, of a Kuri Steger? With, handing them out, Kuri in favor, I mean, that's, um, it, it, it's not nothing. It, it, it has some basis in uh, in. in it was Javanese culture, right? Yeah, yeah. They're uh, they're very legendary. They're very important. Uh, they're very significant. And if the question is why, I don't really know. No, but I mean, they're seen to be important. But is you know, uh, Prabowo is. I've, I've got. I've seen the guy drink wine at lunches. I mean, is is he a is he someone to be, is he trying to pose as sort of a defender of Javanese culture? If he's doing it, does that have some sort of special import? Uh, no, this is not a Javanese uh, thing per se. This is an Indonesian thing. Um, yeah, the, the Chris is something that is uh, meant to confer power. I think what he's doing is just making a, an overture, a gesture, uh, and uh, trying to win favor from these figures. Um, a Chris is, is something that's a, uh, nice to own and people collect them and uh, some of them are very ornate and, and have a, a huge amount of value in and of themselves just because of the materials. Um, and so, yeah, this is just uh, Prabowo seeking favor from Megawati's um, perceived inner circle. Whether these figures are actually her inner circle is another question. <laughs> they're definitely the yeah. ones who, who were around her at the time. Whether they're still the ones that have her ear is uh, another matter. Um, but in the, it, it's interesting, though, that this goes back to a time when Prabowo himself was out of favor. So these were the officials mm. who were close to Megawati and in power themselves when Prabowo was actually in self-imposed exile in Jordan. He was in exile friend, in Jordan. Right. Yes. Yeah. He had been uh, uh, discharged from the army by a panel uh, that included uh, Susilo Bamangidiono. And uh, Sugianto was the army chief. This was back in the 1998. 
but then a, a few years later, uh, some of these other military officials were in power when Prabhu was out. And so now he's trying to make sure that there's no antagonists uh, out there as he tries to align with Megawati. Let's uh, pivot now to COVID um, before we talk with Dr. Budiman. Cases on the rise rapidly, uh, rising, um, but off a low base. Uh, anything that uh, I, I need to be asking uh, Dr. Dickey? Um, yeah, the, the, um, yeah, the hospitalization rate is uh, up in Jakarta to, I believe, uh, uh, 7% now, uh, roughly. And that's a big increase just in the, in the past three weeks from uh, very, uh, only 1%. The case totals are increasing also. They're up uh, 79% week on week uh, to about 825 a day now. Um, but the rate at which they're increasing is not accelerating. In fact, it's, it's declined a little bit since last week when it was over 100% a week. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm not sure that case totals are really so useful nowadays with the Omicron variant because so many cases are asymptomatic. So you know, the hospitalization rate is the key thing to look at. I was going to ask him about boosters as well. Is there, um, I think boosters are available. Do you happen to know which ones? It's just the Chinese ones? Yeah, or? Uh, yeah there's uh, four at least. Uh, Sinovac, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Zifivax. Uh, whether Moderna is going to be available is uh, not so clear about. Mm. Zifivax is a new one uh, produced uh, by uh, a Chinese company and it's received approval. It hasn't been administered as a, a regular dose yet, but it is available now as a booster. Mm. Um, and finally, an obscure political activist filed a report with the Anti-Corruption Commission, the, KP, the KPK, regarding President Joko Widodo's son. Sons, uh, plural, claiming that they possess unseemly business interests with Sinar Mas Group. The activist, mm, Ubidila Badrun, I'm going to say that again. The activist, Ubidila Badrun, uh, denounced Sinar Mas as a company that perpetrated burning of forest near Palembang in South Sumatra in 2015. He says that the president's sons, Solo Mayor Gibran Rakabumi and Kaisang Pangarap, have both on dealings with Sinar Mas, he alleges that Sinar Mas avoided substantial fines for forest fires after the group formed a joint venture with the boy, brothers, the boys, the brothers. Um, and then... Uh, and then uh, Gibran was asked about this by reporters. Uh, yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And was basically... <laughs> you want to take it away there? What he said? <laughs> It was a little bit flippant, right? It was, um, yeah, just arrest me here. If, if I'm if I'm guilty, arrest me now. Yeah, and then Moldoko also, he, he says something similar. It just sort of feels like these are, this is the wrong way to handle this, this issue. Yeah, and I think that uh, somebody counseled Gibran to, to that effect, and he's uh, remained quiet since then, but um, yeah, it, uh, did not reflect well on him. It was a very flippant reaction to this, uh, allegation where, 
He said, uh, there's only two possibilities. I'm innocent or I'm guilty. And if I'm guilty, just arrest me right here, right now. It's simple, isn't it? Uh, and the, 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 the charge inherently is uh, yeah, definitely questionable. And Sinemas is arguably Indonesia's largest conglomerate you know, up there with uh, you know, the Hartono's holdings. And um, you know, whether it uh, is really responsible for uh, forest burning is uh, yeah, a definite possibility, but you know, proof to that effect is, I think, lacking. And so these charges are not going to stand up in the KPK. Um, one way or the other, especially because the KPK is no longer independent. So there's a zero chance that uh, the sons of the president are going to get in trouble. But um, it is a, an interesting uh, PR move by Ubadila Badrum to, to do this. And uh, we'll see uh, if it has any uh, impact or effect. I think what it shows basically is that from here on out, the Widodo administration is going to be uh, struggling with swirling controversies and corruption allegations and scandals. Um, probably, you know, for the duration of uh, the remainder of Widodo's term. Yeah. Also sort of demonstrates that um, the the sons may not have picked up much of uh, the father's ability to parry questions and, and uh, dodge and, well, yeah, be gracious. Not, not, it just yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, not, not Gibran Rakabumi, I don't think, the solo mayor. Um, Kaisan Pangarep uh, has uh, sort of a different makeup, and uh, uh, they're both still very young, so we'll see. But but Kipuran Rakabumin is receiving mention as a possible nominee for Jakarta governor in 2024, so um, his career could uh, uh, take off. But the, there the problem is that um, PDIP and, and his chair, Megawati, may be unwilling to give him their nomination. So he, he may have trouble getting a nomination for that race. Okay, we'll leave it there. Coming up, Dickie Budiman of Griffith University. He is a medical doctor graduating from Universitas Pajajaran, a.k.a. Unpad University. He later trained as an epidemiologist at Griffith University in Queensland, where he is currently based and advising the government of Indonesia and journalists and podcasts on everything from SARS to HIV to COVID-19. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Diki Budiman. Papa, thanks so much for joining us. No worries. When we first heard of Omicron, thoughts turned to Delta, and we were worried that we would see a repeat of uh, July. Maybe not because the cases would be more severe, but because there would be so many more of them. And that would be a real concern in a place like Indonesia that has very limited healthcare facilities. But we yeah. haven't really seen a massive outbreak yet. Now, I'm knocking on wood. Is one about to happen? Or what should we be making of this moment right now? It's, it's again, when we see the curve of the pandemic in one region or one country, it's always about the capacity to detect. The early detection capacity is very vital in terms of finding the cases. And, and that's the, the Indonesian problem so far, because 
the ability to to find the the, the infection cases is limited. Currently, even uh, the government claim the cases. Uh, I mean, before before the Omicron, the cases flattening and also decreasing. That's happened in the middle of the also decreasing of the uh, testing intervention. So now we we have a more complex problem with Omicron because Omicron is also bring new uh, uh, you know new challenges because the majority even some the research say almost ninety percent of this. Omicron cases is asymptomatic or without symptom. So then, you know, in Indonesia, our community behavior or people tend to treat by themselves. It's, and, and Indonesian people is not like uh, in Western countries, like say in, in, in USA or in here in Australia, if they uh, find something problem with their health status or their, their health condition, they will go and seek the medical doctor or, or, or go to the hospital. Right. But in Indonesia, no. They will stay at home. They will treat by themselves. And this is the problem. This is the problem. And the combination b- uh, between the asymptomatic, the large proportion of these uh, Omicron cases is asymptomatic, and also the minimum or limited uh, intervention in terms of testing and tracing, it's uh, put this seems like Indonesia still like uh, in, in uh, we call it in, uh, not, not really have a high number of the Omicron, but you know, uh, based on my calculation, because uh, Omicron has doubling time, like at least two or four days. It's right. shorter, shorter than than Delta. So now actually it's probably eight times than the government report. Right. Well, in that case, so then what if we were just to look at the bed occupancy ratios? Yes. Because it's, it's looking like the hospitals are still able to accommodate. I mean, I mean, yeah. I, that, 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 that runway can run out really quickly, of course, but <laughs> for now, it, it seems to be well in hand. Is that a, yes. is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the latest data today I just uh, got from Jakarta, the bed of occupancy rate is like 20%, 20%. So it's, of course, much much low, uh, lower than uh, the alpha, the, the the threshold, which is around sixty percent. But again, I, I should warn the the public and the government that the Indonesian people is not the one who will seek the treatment in hospital directly, especially when they feel is this is a uh, uh, mild and also no, not not really you know a big problem for them. But the problem is that. The situation in the community, especially for unvaccinated person or for the uh, the population who has the high risk, like uh, elderly and also commodity, the situation can change very rapidly and can be very progressive. And this is something that we can see also in terms of Delta, Alpha, and now in also in during the Omicron in many countries in, in, in Europe and America and in Australia. So... That's why the early detection is again is very important. 
even they 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 feel asymptomatic. Even many of them feel this is mild. But again, the people who got Omicron should be identified and also treat very well and also monitor because the situation can be changed very rapidly. Just just to to put in the context, Jeff. For, to put in the context, just few days ago, there's a there were a young athlete in here, 23 years old, and also no comorbidity, fully vaccinated, and was died due, due, due to the Omicron because the uh, cytokine storm. Wow. I'd like to introduce um, my co-host and bring him in, uh, Kevin O'Rourke. Um, yeah. Kevin, do you have a question? Yeah. Yes. Hi, Padiki. Thanks for uh, hi, joining hi. us. Hi, Kevin. Um, do you have any... Uh, insight into the level of uh, antibody prevalence from maybe from serological surveys uh, mm. anywhere in Indonesia that might uh, indicate how much uh, resilience there might be in the population to Omicron because of the uh, Delta wave that happened six months ago? Yeah. So, you know, the government already released maybe a few weeks ago. It's about the they are, they are result of the serological uh, surveillance, which show a very fantastic number is uh, around 80% something, uh, 86% of, of total uh, population in Indonesia already has antibody from the uh, COVID-19, which also actually strengthened my hypothesis and also strengthened my uh, statement during the uh, Delta wave few months ago, because at that time I told to the government, at least we lose like maybe around 300,000 or 500,000 a day uh, of, of the COVID-19 infection during that uh, the peak is like maybe one week to, to two weeks. And if I calculate it, it's like millions cases, millions cases. And now, even at that time, the government against uh, the my position or my uh, analysis then, but then now... The result is support my first analysis and hypothesis. And again, this is about the, it is not about the cases not there. Uh, it's about the, the limiting, limited capacity of the government in terms of the testing capacity. And yeah. then, uh, you know, uh, this is also, I think, because some epidemiologists in Indonesia use this also as the, let's say, a base to support their theory and also assumption that Indonesia now is in in safety level uh, in again or facing the Omicron. But I'm not support and in our has different opinion about this because, of course, yes, antibody. Yes, we know this is some kind of level of immunity to the COVID nineteen, but. We cannot, you know, uh, has a strong uh, evidence. Uh, we don't have a strong evidence regarding how long this immunity will last, and 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 also we don't have enough the you know uh, exact data uh, about who's and uh, in what kind of combination. I, I mean. Let's say if they are second dose or first dose with the infection of infection, then another uh, vaccination, 
it's it's too complicated and we cannot rely on this uh, data because it's very 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 vulnerable i think because then uh, as we see in india and we seen also in many countries who also fully vaccinated even fully vaccinated like in australia the number of infection is highly uh, high increase and uh, then they break the record many country many continents now break their record compared to delta Dr. Man, we, well, i want to jump in there and and, I, and let kevin ask a couple more questions i'm sorry i don't mean to speak o- over you because no, no. Our time it's is okay. limited. Kevin, you yeah. were, you wanted to ask a couple of questions about Sinovac and Paxlovid. Yeah. Why don't you fire away? Yeah, it's a complicated picture, as you uh, point out. That's interesting. Yeah. And uh don't want to make it more complicated, but uh, <laughs> yeah. um, the Sinovac uh, efficacy against uh, Omicron seems as if there's two different accounts. The company mm-hmm. claims that it's highly effective, uh, but I think there was some research in Hong Kong showing that it was not effective at all. Do you have any insights on the efficacy of Sinovac towards Omicron? Yeah, uh, there's several uh, results about this uh, effectiveness of the Sinovac in the real world. But of course, then we show also another result from Thailand, uh, which combined these two doses of Sinovac with half dose of Pfizer also show higher uh, protection or efficacy uh, compared to two doses of AstraZeneca and then the third dose of booster with uh, Pfizer, half dose of Pfizer. And again, as a medical doctor and also I, I can, let's say this is the very short meta-analysis that, of course, at at certain degree, there is a protection from Sinovac. And and uh, we if we talk about this, uh, of course, uh, the limits of this Sinovac or the weak of this Sinovac is about they are research uh, in terms of the real world effectivity, and uh, that's that's what they they they, they are uh, weakness so far because mm. compared to other vaccine, they already produce many data during their you know performance in the real world. And this is something that uh, not really support by the sign of fact. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. And and I ask yeah. also the government to support this. I mean, to find the, the data, the real world data. But I can see from the, let's say, the real world situation. Let's say the, uh, the number of infection among the healthcare workers in Indonesia, the number of the death case among the healthcare workers in Indonesia now is decreasing. And uh, we know the uh, the majority of them, they receive these uh, two doses of Sinovac. And now they already boost by the uh, Moderna. So it seems okay. it's, it's, it's working well. It seems it's working well in the real world. Chile should be the other comparable country yes. for Indonesia because, yeah. Yes, yes, I agree with you. Yeah, Chile is very good in terms of <laughs> better than Indonesia in terms of the data. But uh, still, uh, regarding to uh, Sinovac, uh, still compared to, uh, let's say, uh, AstraZeneca or Messenger RNA, of course, uh, they need to, to provide more data or to give more confidence and trust from the public. Because, of course, at certain level, I believe, uh, based on that many empirical study, that they have a good protection. Mm. Uh, but, of course, less, if so far, less 
compared to messenger RNA, but but not zero, not yeah. minus. Yeah. yeah. Um, turning to a different pharmaceutical, Paxlovid. Um, yes. I understand that there's a shipment that's arrived in Indonesia. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and the monofiravir or Paxlovid is too antiviral that, uh, of course, promising in terms of minimizing the effect, especially for Omicron, for the uh, health of uh, high or vulnerable population. But the problem with this medicine is it is curative intervention. You know, curative intervention, it's one step after preventive or mm -hmm. this, this should be after prevention, after promotion or promotive uh, intervention. So we cannot put the uh, curative intervention in front. We cannot put this as the first line of in, uh, strategy because that will be too late uh, because then there will be many people undetected and many people also will uh, have a, a, a fatal con consequence. So, and the other issue for this antiviral, all of them is the, their success intervention or effectivity depend on early detection. So yeah. this is the problem yeah. with Indonesia. Early detection, it's mean we have to more to have more testing. We have to center our uh, testing and tracking. So this is a problem because like when, then when, when, when do you have to at what point um, does uh, Paxlovid become ineffective? So uh, it will be effective if the uh, screening in, uh, let's say, community, let's say in, in you know, Puskesmas, in community yeah, health center is uh, strengthening. So uh, it's like what happened also, in, I think, in, in some, uh, in here also, they, they will start to drop this medicine mm -hmm. in a local health center. So at uh, the earliest, earliest symptom, at the earliest uh, phase of their condition, but if you put, of course, they, we have to also put in hospital. But, you know, in terms of Indonesia, right. the, the most close or the closer facility to the public is in Puskesmas. Yeah. Yes. The so then we yeah. have to strengthen our community outreach then. Dicky, let me ask you about uh, Paxlovid a little bit further, just to put yeah. things in context here. It seems like it's going to be only a lucky few that are going to benefit from this. But Indonesia yeah. received 400,000 pills i think um, yes you know how many pills are in one course is it five or ten or twenty for around five if i'm not mistaken for okay. but you know the price is very very expensive the price is very expensive so I, i'm 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 thinking also about it because i was in government before in planning a bureau of planning and budgeting so it is to make sure this is very effective, so the government should have very effective also program and and also to reach the early uh, phase of their uh, patient to get this yeah. uh, medicine. So, so, so I don't know, it'll be maybe eighty thousand people patients that can benefit from this shipment. And yeah, going to be a small fraction of the people that are actually sick if yeah. there's a really big spike. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. It's better than nothing. Do you think there's another shipment that might be expected of Paxlovid for Indonesia, or is that it? Yes, yeah, there will be. And also the government also will 
I think they already have discussion to produce the medicine in Indonesia. I, I don't know which one of company in, in government will deal with, but but uh, this is still there will be some effectivity. But then, unless the government, let's say, they put for every high uh, risk, like say maybe in let's say maybe. Even the uh, what is it? The public services, maybe medical doctor, even the oh, yeah. some uh, you know you know because they they should also protect it because some of them is also in dangerous in terms of the comorbidity and sometimes so this will also this medicine will also will give them benefit not only for patient but also for them and also yeah. of course for some patient who also already. You know, okay, they already contact uh, uh, in 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 very short time, so it's it's. I think still still there's some uh, opportunity to use this effectivity effectiveness. Where are we in the outbreak, the the Omicron outbreak? You're, there's talk in the U.S. that maybe um, they're at a peak. Um, and, and I'm kind yeah. of yeah, kind of wondering where where are we in that in that uptick in in cases. <laughs> It's now not early, not really early, but is we are in maybe the second step of this <laughs> curve. And uh, I predict we will, uh, I already uh, released this to the government last month on December 2021, that Indonesia, especially Java and Bali, will have the uh, Omicron peak in, uh, in February. Uh, early February until mid of February, but mm. then uh, part of Indonesian, especially out of uh, Java and in Bali, will be uh, have in maybe March, and of course the duration of this peak is will be shorter than than uh, Delta variant, but the implication will be very in among the region because. Uh, Jeff, you already mentioned before, but the capacity of the healthcare, the even now we show in many countries the number of infection among the healthcare workers, the public services is increasing, and it will give impact to the quality of self health services. And it's not about the severity uh, itself; it's but about the how. You know, Indonesia already have a limited number of the healthcare right. workers. And then if they are put in this isolation and quarantine, so it will reduce this number. And the other things that we Indonesia should be also very aware and make a very strong mitigation is about we still have like maybe more than 40 million of children who have not uh, vaccinated yet. And that's that's very huge number, and and that's very dangerous because as we seen in many country, uh, the even in US, you know, twenty percent severity is increasing among these uh, uh, children, and the date case among the uh, children is is increasing. Uh, for example, in Indonesia, uh, sorry, in Australia, so far for almost two years of pandemic. I never seen the uh, date case among children, but then after Omicron, Omicron, there is many now. So and it show us how vulnerable these children in the population is will be 
during this Omicron. And Indonesia is very young population compared to many developed countries. So that's why uh, just today I just released my strong recommendation to government just to suspend the offline uh, school and just postpone until maybe early March because it's too dangerous for them because it's they don't, many of them is unvaccinated. How about the uh, travel quarantine, uh, Patrick? Do you uh, recommend continuing that? The what? Uh, the uh, travel quarantine for incoming oh. travelers. Yeah, um, there's, there's two mechanisms about this uh, travel quarantine. That's from abroad, I mean, from, you know, out of Indonesia and, and within the region. So the quarantine length or duration is seven days. That's the very the minimum threshold. So we cannot have lower than seven days. But then to minimize the risk, I already also uh, advise the government first before the passenger of uh, or travelers come to will go to Indonesia, they have to, of course, uh, have a PCR negative in twenty four hours before aboard, and then they have also not only two doses of vaccination, but for, let's say, elderly or, you know, vulnerable uh, population, they should have the uh, booster. I think they should have. And if possible, if possible, for some vulnerable population and in very, you know, risk situation, let's say, or maybe the this person is already had contact with, you know, uh, positive cases, it's very uh, very good if they can have uh, the rapid test antigen just four hours before they uh, go uh, on board. And then, of course, during the quarantine in Indonesia, at least three PCR. And the, the last two PCR tests should be negative within 24 hours difference time. And that's that's uh, what we can do in terms of minimize the risk. But of course, then the most important to respond to this, uh, you know, imported case and also not imported, but domestic cases about the response within the country. And again, it's come back to the testing, tracing, isolation, quarantine, the self-quarantine should be effective. And also, uh, you know, Indonesia, we have 5M or, you know, the wearing masks and others and also the vaccination. Uh, we still have uh, homework and challenges for vaccination. Even the second dose, uh, still less than fifty percent. I mean, yeah, all reach will reach fifty percent, but it's st- still not enough yet. Especially, why, why, yes. Why, why is that so slow? You know, in in Indonesia, uh, when we start the uh, uh, vaccination, we started in, we call it the many urban area in Java and Bali. And that's, I can say, of course, in in question mark, it's not easy but as we've seen, but it is the first step that more likely to have uh, or reach the, their target. But then now we reached out of Java Island uh, and also reach the Paver Island. And we know the problem with this uh, population is about the infodemics is already surrounding for a long time, you know, uh, has mm. vaccine hesitancy, the transportation mm. problem, the geographical 
problem, the uh, cold chain problem. So this is something that we we now seeing in Indonesia uh, regarding their vaccination program. And of course, the government should also make an innovative uh, strategy to, to deal with this. Pak Diki, thanks so much for joining us. No yeah, worries, no worries. And okay, good luck. And please, also, please, uh, through this podcast, I always remind all of us, especially in Indonesia, that Indonesia is not different with many countries. There is no different because... Based on you, I think Kevin, you mentioned about this uh, super immunity. Ah, uh, no, there is yes, there is super immunity, but we cannot rely on this, and uh, we are we are in in very dangerous situation if we rely on this immunity because the strongest uh, strategy that we can use is the combination vaccination the testing, tracing, and also, of course, the social distancing, also pub- another public health intervention, but not based on geographical situation, not based on immunity, which is we know this immunity is waning by the time. So that's my closing statement. Okay. Thanks so much for joining Thanks us. Thank you. And that's the pod. Thanks so much to Dickie Bootyman of Griffith University in Queensland for joining us. Our editing and sound engineering is done by Stephen Handoko. Our music is courtesy of the Blue Dot Sessions. For a free trial of Kevin's Reformasi Weekly Newsletter, along with a long list of tiresome, cliched political metaphors derived from double-edged asymmetrical daggers, go to reformasi.info. And if you're listening to us through a podcast app, Please subscribe. It's just a click. You'll feel better. It'll mean the world to Kevin, too. As always, you can reach us at onthelevel.id. This podcast is a production of On The Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now.